Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. We apologize for such a glitch today. We had some breakdowns with Blog Talk Radio, but it's okay. We're here, and we have an amazing show for you today. I am so excited. We have Kevin Wang, who is with the Teals program and also out of Microsoft, who's going to share about computer science in the schools. And we're so, so excited about this. In addition, we also have Ms. Nadine Reddick, who is from iRescue, who has created an app that will support us in emergency medical situations around the world with access to that. It's just an amazing show. So without any further ado, if you don't mind, everyone, I'm going to bring on Jay Logan, our co-host, and get everything started right away. Hello, Jay. How are you today? Hey, Gail. How are you today? I'm doing very well. It's beautiful out here in California. How about out there in the East Coast? It's doing very well, Jay, and, you know, I'm just a, you know, it, it's those glitches that we try to get through all the time that seem to just happen. So, you know, I don't want to keep Kevin Wang waiting. I know that our audience is anxious to hear Mr. Wang and what he has to share, and, you know, we're really excited about this today as well because we spoke about this gentleman and his program not knowing that it was Kevin Wang's program, and he was at the New York Tech meetup yesterday sharing the amazing things that he's doing with kids for computer science in high schools across the country and anywhere it will be accepted. So without further ado, as he has meetings today, we are going to go right into having Mr. Wang come right on right now, Jay. Hello, Kevin. Hey, guys. Hi, how are you? We are so apologetic with Blog Talk Radio for our technology breakdown. So we'd like to know, Kevin, if it's okay if we could get right into the questions with you because we really want our audience to know what you're up to. Um, so, Kevin, welcome. We're happy to have you. And, you know, I'd like you to meet Jay, the co-host from San Francisco. Cool. How are you, Kevin? Hey. We uh, okay. just got off the phone with uh, a few schools in San Francisco, actually. So. Well, that's wonderful. great. Yeah, we. I mean, Jay shared about this project, uh, Kevin, if we might say this. Last year in October, we spoke about your project actually here on the radio. And, you know, not knowing that it was you speaking. So, you know, it's so great having the opportunity to see you at the New York Tech Meetup last night. And, you know, we love the fact that you're helping schools across the United States. So would you tell us, uh, you know, we have several questions, so we're going to tailor them to a short amount of time given your schedule, but we know that we'll get enough in for everyone to learn more about you, and perhaps we'd have you back later in the year. Would you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about the TEALS program, Kevin? Sure. Um, The actually has a huge shortage of uh, people with computer background uh, to go into industry. I think the shortage is something like 40 or 80,000 plus a year for foreseeable for at least the next decade. Um, And these are great, amazing uh, careers that kids can can have, Um, but we just don't have uh, computer science in our schools 
uh, in our high schools today. Um, out of uh, 45,000 or so high schools in the country, only about uh, six to 7,000 offer computer science, and uh, out of those, only 2,000 offer um, AP computer science. So the pipeline to uh, for computer science for computer scientists going from uh, high school to college and, and to to a great career is kind of uh, broken in the at, the at the very beginning. So um, so we try to um, help with uh, help high schools uh, build up their computer science program uh, with with industry volunteers. Um, we have you know schools that want to bring computer science, but uh, can't find uh, a teacher with a CS background. We pair them up with a few industry volunteers that we train and um, put on a CS class in the mornings uh, before um, uh, before everyone has to go to work. Um, and, and have that class. We teach the kids, but we also teach the in-service teacher. And uh, after a couple of years, that curriculum gets handed off to the uh, to the high school teacher, and they can teach uh, computer science for the rest of the day. Wow. Wow. Yeah, Kevin, um, I'd like to ask you, what, what made you choose to create such a wonderful program like this for urban schools? Um, we have, we are in all sorts of schools. The numbers are so bad right now for, you know, just across the board. Uh, so we're in urban schools, uh, you know, Title I schools. Um, I think the New York Times story featured uh, one of them. Uh, you know, I think the school is 80%, uh, 80, 90% free reduced lunch, um, and uh, same number uh, for underrepresented and minorities. Uh, we're also into, you know, uh, rural schools uh, as well as um, suburban schools. And, you know, We'll be in schools in Alaska, you know, teaching in mm-hmm. Eastern Kentucky, and you know, everywhere. So it's just kind of, um, you know, it's just one of the places that we are. Um, we don't, we don't say, you know, it has to be an urban school or has to be a school that meets a certain criteria. But we're just saying, you know, all of the schools that want it and, and have principals and, and people in the building that value this program and want it to succeed, uh, to succeed, then. Um, we end up partnering with them and bring computer science to their students. Well, you know that that's right. that brings me to the next question, um, Kevin. Um, I don't know. Is, is there a way that we can slightly hear you a little uh, clearer? It's just a little bit of stagnant there because we want our audience definitely to catch capture everything. No, nope, that's it. I'm already on the headset. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So what? Is, that's great. What you just your speaking voice now. We hear you perfectly. What is the state? Of minorities in the Teals program right now, um, we have multiple schools in D.C. in certain areas. You know, the the demographics are essentially the schools that partner with us. That demographic is already built in. So, like in D.C., we're in a couple of um, D.C. public charter schools. I believe uh, it's you know 400 kids. Um, I think there's only one student who is uh, non-African American. And so we have, yeah, the, the Friendship Academy, we have 15 to 16 kids there, all, all, all African American, taking AP computer science. Well, when we say minority... For, for comparison, for comparison, last year the entire state of Washington had 10 uh, African American kids take APCS. Well, now, when we speak about minorities, um, Kevin, we're not just speaking of African-Americans. We're speaking like of, you know, Indian kids, 
also Hispanic kids, you know, kids of different, you know, nationalities. Asian. Yeah, Asian. Yeah, so Yeah, so it's it's really all about the schools that we go into, right? We the, if the school has that um has that minority um breakout, then we're 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 happy to be there. Okay. Because I know, you know, there's yeah, so, so certain schools we go into just when, you know, a couple of the schools um, in New York that we're going to be in are all girls' schools, right? I mean, that's just naturally. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, it's also going to be two schools that are all girls, and that's just how it is. So, yeah, it's it's more about, you know, the schools that we partner with and the commitments that the principals make on having computer science at their school. Well, that's amazing because, you know, you spoke about all girls. You know, that brings me to the next, um, que- uh, both Jay and I to the next question, which is further down in some of our questions, is that, you know, girls really need this, okay? Mm-hmm. Especially because, as you know, a lot of uh, young men and, and older men are usually into the technology, and it's, and then it's increasingly more young women and older women are coming into computer science like never before. So this is amazing to know that you're going to two all-girls schools. I believe Jay has another question for you as well. Yes, uh, Kevin, uh, first I want to ask you, which state is the TEAL program now involved in, and where will you be expanding to? So we're in uh, seven states right now. We're in 35 schools in seven states. Uh, wow. We have a couple of pilots down in California, and we'll probably be expanding there to about half a dozen uh, schools in California, including San Diego, you know, a couple of pilots in San Diego and L.A., and then probably half a dozen or so in the Bay Area itself. Um, New York, we're going to have six schools there. We're already in D.C., Northern Virginia area. We have half a dozen uh, schools there, and you know Puget Sound. We have uh, schools that uh, next year, you know, in Utah, in North Dakota, in Minnesota, in Kentucky. So you name it, we got we got we got everybody covered. Wow. Do you guys bring the re- do you guys bring the resources there also, or do you just bring the mentors and the teachers there? How does that how does that work? What do you, What do you mean by resources? Uh, um, uh, you know. Computer equipment, uh, certain type of programming, you know, books, curriculum, you know, stuff like that. No, um, I think the most valuable asset that we offer is the people standing in front of the classroom. Um, If they're going to offer computer science anyways, they would have to buy the hardware, the books, and all that stuff anyway. We're not a, uh, we don't, you know, uh, we're we're not a computer buying program. So um, all of the schools. Um, have to get that stuff on their own, and they wouldn't need to get that stuff on their own anyway. They're offering computer science. So you guys bring the knowledge. Which you guys bring the knowledge. Yeah, that's the most important thing that money can't even buy. <laughs> that's that's true. You know, that's very true. And you know, that brings me to the next thing. How does the Teals men? How does the Teals mentors work with the current curriculum of the middle high school teachers, and you know, with the parents as well? Yeah, so uh, we have our own curriculum. Our intro to CS curriculum is based on the University of California CS10 uh, course that's been running at UC Berkeley for four or five years. It's essentially a um, a very introductory course to computer science. Think of it as the computer science version of conceptual physics. The kids all learn the big ideas uh, behind computer science, but uh, they don't dig too deep uh, into any one area. Um, and then the AP course is we use the uh, we use the University of Washington curriculum and book um, and and 
advanced placement is advanced placement. So that curriculum is already kind of uh, set. Hmm. That's uh, very very good. Um, Kevin and I, did, we were discussing this question earlier, and, and me and Gail had this question. I was wondering how many young women are involved in the TIL program as of now, and what is the TIL program to get these young girls involved in CS and in uh, science engineering in uh, some of the programs that you offer? Yeah, so we have um, – we recruit out of the tech industry, and the tech industry is only something like 15% women. Uh, so we need to aggressively um, recruit women to be those mentors, uh, to, to teach in the classroom, to be that role model in front of the classroom uh, a, a couple of days a week so girls can see uh, themselves in their shoes. Um, and, and that's really, really important to us. So we are, um, you know, this recruiting round. So uh, we're, we're definitely trying a lot harder to get uh, female engineers to be aware of this program and and, and have them step up and, and and volunteer their time. Wonderful. That, um, you know, you talk, if you talk about women, one of the things that's you know really um, important to us in, in dealing with women and, and knowing about these things is, you know, what. You know what? Given what you've shared about everything that you're up to, you know, going into the new schools, coming into New York, you know, um, going into the, which is great, having these two schools that are mainly uh, made up of young ladies. What are what, all of this? It seems like you're moving very quickly, and things are coming together for you quickly. What do you see as the future goals or goals that you can share for the Teals program? I think you know the ultimate goal is to never have to discuss this again, right? Like, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, it, it gets to a point, it's like, you know, uh, physics, chem, bio, where that's just not a problem, right? Like, uh, in biology, I think AP is now uh, majority uh, girls, I, th I think, at this point, and, and that's, you know, that, that doesn't really come up in uh, topic, uh, conversation to topics anymore. Um, so we want to get to that point, you know, having... Uh, Every kid in American high schools has the opportunity to take CS as a elective class. If they're interested, they should be able to. Uh, they should be able to take it and and have an AP there. You know, AP should you know be in the numbers instead of being zero six zero point six eight percent or something of all AP tests. It should be you know with only twenty thousand kids, twenty five thousand kids. It should be like, you know, physics and bio and chem and, and be, you know, somewhere around 150,000 kids every year taking taking that test. Hello? Yeah. Okay. So um, I think Jay had a question for you. Okay. Yes, I do. Um, my question is... Um, where do you recruit? Where do you recruit the computer science teachers from, um, Kevin? From where do they come from? All across the industry, all across, not just Microsoft, but you know we have uh, down in Woodside, we have a uh, an AP section of um, 16, 18 kids in uh, Woodside High School, um, and we have a engineer from Microsoft and an engineer from Google teaching that AP course together. So now, do you train? Do you across, do you train these? Board. 
do you, Kevin, do you train these teachers? Do they go through some type of uh, course or yeah. you guys might? Of course. We don't just air software engineers into um, high school classrooms. Uh, there is a uh, summer training program that they go through, so they invest somewhere between 80 to 100 hours over the summer to uh, to get ready, you know, lesson planning, pedagogy, uh, classroom management, the curriculum, everything. Wow. That's great. You know, my my next question to you is: This is this is very important. We were talking about this today, not just not just computer science, Kevin, but also science in general is decreasing in schools across the country, as well as music. Okay, you know, uh, these are some of the most important things that help balance out a child's intellectual mind as well as their academic mind, because a lot of people don't realize the intellectual and the academic and the cognitive mind. Is Three different areas. I'd like to ask you, why do you think science is decreasing in, this, in, in the schools? And I know it's, some is money and cutbacks, so why do you think it's, it's also decreasing in schools right now? Uh, for computer science, it's, you know, uh, schools have math departments, music departments, um, science departments. You know, you, you have multiple teachers teaching the same discipline. Uh, you have multiple physics teachers, you have multiple chemistry teachers, you have multiple biology teachers. Computer science at this point don't even exist in, in a majority of schools, right? Like 38,000 uh, high schools in America doesn't even have a computer science department or, you know, computer science under the science department or the math department. It just doesn't exist at all. Um, there's really nothing to cut back from at this point. So, and, and that's kind of where the biggest need is, and, and, and that's why we're laser focused on on computer science. Um, you know, until until we can bring it up to um, bring it up to comparable numbers in other um, in other disciplines. Wow, this is a, a great question, Gil. I have for Kevin, and um, I was wondering why is it important to get more CS teachers in our public school system? Um, you know, CS is one of those things that's emergent. Like I said, the, the kids who are, you know, in high school now was, uh, you know, born after the Berlin Wall fell. Um, you know, they don't remember what a modem dial tone uh, sounds like or have never heard it. Uh, they, you know, uh, after apartheid ended or more after apartheid ended. And so they, they come into a world where, where technology is every part of their lives. But we don't go and um, but we don't teach it in our high school generally on how the information technology world around them works. That's really important. Not even just you know we don't need every every student to become a computer scientist, but you know there needs to be a basic even before that a basic level of literacy, technology literacy of kids knowing how things work, um, just like you know um, they know how gravity works, right? So same thing. Kids should know all of the big ideas behind computer science that makes their their world go around. Wow. Well, well, you know, Kevin, one of the other things that, you know, I know Jay has one more question because he's been dying to get you on here for a while. Um, how can how can parents support your program, Kevin? What can they do? We know the teachers. We know about the mentors you have coming in. But literally, how can parents support this program if they want to bring it into their schools? 
I think, you know, through through the parent foundations, uh, through, you know, the school foundations, the, the PTA, you know, talking to your administrators, asking, you know, if, if you know, if computer science exists at their kid's school, kind of what level it's at, and, and just kind of just be uh, concerned parents and, and kind of raise that, raise that, uh, raise that issue and say, you know what, we really think our, our kids should have computer science. And, and just let the administration know uh, know about that. And because you know, if the, the administration you know um, don't hear a lot of demand from the parents, then then that's not something they're going to be uh, spending a lot of time putting it on. Wow. Well, Jay, I know you had one last. So just question. concerned parents, right? Parents are concerned about everything. Menus, <laughs> whatever yeah. it is. You know, we want healthier lunches and stuff, and and they force a lot of change through that because they, you know, they talk to the administration, they work with the administration to, to to move the school a certain to a certain new direction, and and the same for computer science. Um, wait, Kevin, I do have one question. Given that you said that, Jay, just give me this last question. I oh, I want okay. to just um, uh, one of the things I would like to know is. How does this work with regard to um, – Would you do you have a camp for this in the summer? Is, is that something that you guys have done or something that you would look at doing? Yeah, so there's a lot of other – so we don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's tons of, of camps that already exist. Um, our difference is that we make computer science an everyday subject, just like math and science, uh, biochem that it's not just an after-school program that only certain kids that are already interested go to, right? That's that's the big difference. Um, and and we let the kids know about these after-school or extracurricular or summer summer programs. And those are, a lot of them are, are very local, uh, you know, University of Washington puts one on, you know, Google has a camp, Microsoft has as a camp, uh, you know, Microsoft offers a high school internship. Uh, other people do that as well. And so there's just a lot of opportunities out there for for kids that are interested, but we needed to make sure they're interested in school so they can explore more after school and, and during the summer. Wow. Well, I know, Jay, that you had one last question, and then we're going to let Kevin go because we know that he has a meeting. Okay. I just, Kevin, it's just been such an honor. I've been following you for the last uh, two years, and just to have you on the show, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed. And just to have somebody of your, you know, to have that compassion and care about kids on our show is such an honor for you to be here. My, my, my last question to you is, um, since the Teal program has been active since 2010 um, until now, 2013, have you seen um, more kids taking part of the computer science advanced placement test? Have there been more kids doing that since you guys have been involved? Uh, yeah, I mean the numbers are uh, the numbers are growing, but then it's not it's not keeping up pace with the overall growth of uh, mm-hmm. of the AP test. You know, for the since like '97. You know, if you look at back in '97. Only you know a slightly under a million AP tests were given. Now we're at 3.6 million, um, and the AP numbers of APCS have actually stayed flat. 
It's always okay. been at about 18,000, 20,000, 22,000, 24,000. When the rest of the AP numbers have, have tripled in, in the past, you know, 15 years, computer science has stayed flat. So, obviously, relatively, we're actually, as a, as a percentage, we're, we're actually shrinking. Mm. Any uh, advice to what we could do to it uh, make this a better situation? <laughs> Talk to your schools, uh, you know, talk to your schools, talk to, um, you know, talk to the parents, talk to the kids. Um, you know, everyone has to work together to, you know, to bring in, bring in the tech community. You know, just everyone has to work together to to make sure, um, you know, high school kids in the future will have um, computer science as, as, as a choice in terms of a of class. Thank you so much. All right, great. Thank you so much, guys. And thank you for having being with us. And you know, we will definitely have this available for everyone to hear. And Kevin, if you'd like to have it, uh, feel free to go back to the the URL, and you'll be able to download it. We thank you again for being here. All right, thank you. Bye. All right, right bye bye. Well, Jay, that was absolutely a wonderful interaction. I would say, wouldn't you think? Yes, I think that was great, and just his uh, demeanor was wonderful, and just the knowledge and him going after these young people and trying to get them involved in computer science and engineering. I mean, we couldn't have anything better. That's what the show is about, you know, bringing it to the people, and I just really enjoyed him. I, I really did, too. I was just sorry for the technological glitch. I want to say sorry to our audience again because that usually does not happen. You know, and so, you know, we're going on to another woman who I'm really, really excited about, Jay. Uh, her name is Nadine Leddick. And she is an amazing woman. I met her last night, so bubbly, so, I mean, these guys, people like Kevin and others that were at the New York Tech Meetup want to just say hello out there to Nate, Jessica Lawrence, Lori, and all of that whole team at New York Tech, uh, New York Tech Meetup. They do so much to help people like Kevin and others support our schools and everything. It's amazing. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our next guest. Our next guest is Nadine Levick, okay? She is an MD and an, and an MPH, and she's the iRescue founder and director. And this is a very unusual app that I can't wait for people to hear about. So without further ado, Jay, are you ready to bring her on? I am so ready to bring her on. <laughs> Hello, Nadine. How are you? Hi there. How are you guys? We are absolutely wonderful. We thank you for being patient with us with our technological breakdown here. And, you know, just Nadine, it was, you know, thanks for being with us. And, you know, it was so amazing seeing your app last night, Making a Difference in Medical Emergencies. Would you... Uh, oh. Sorry, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Thank you. And I'd like you, before I go on, to meet our uh, co-host here, Jay. Hi, hi, Jay. Nadine. How you doing? Hi, hi, Nadine. Thanks for joining our show today. Uh, that's great. It's a pleasure. Okay. I had to race straight off to uh, work the ER shift after the New York Tech meetup last night, so I managed to scramble home and have a few hours of sleep, so I'm wide awake now. Okay. Well, we're glad you, we're glad you are, too. <laughs> so, Nadine, you know, we have questions set up for you, so we don't want you to give all the goodies away right away, okay? I got so, it. Okay, so we'd like you to, would you tell us about the app and how it works for our audience? Sure. 
Well, look, I think one of the first things to, to let folks know is that there are many things that you can do as a bystander in an emergency, particularly an emergency like a sudden cardiac arrest. And when it comes down to, you know, does that ever happen? Well, gee, you know, there's about a thousand sudden cardiac arrests every day in the United States. And those are things that are happening outside the hospital. And you've got really very, very little time on your hands to react. You've got to do three things. You've got to call 911 or whatever the global equivalent is. Start doing CPR on that unconscious, unresponsive person. And then find that defibrillator, the AED, heart starter. And they're positioned all over the place in malls, in public places, in shops, in in different places and uh, buildings. And you've got to find that, grab it. It's designed for lay people to use because you need to use that as soon as possible. Some of the data shows that up to 80% of people that have a cardiac arrest have a reversible rhythm in the first few minutes. So really three three jumbo jets a day is 1,000 people a day and you don't want to see those people dying unnecessarily. You wouldn't tolerate it if it was a jumbo jet falling out of the sky like that. So we're trying to work out what we can do to empower the community so that we can bridge the existing gaps in addressing this problem. There's lots of people that get trained in CPR and AD use, but when you actually look down at what percentage of society, it's pretty low. We've got great new tech solutions now. So what we're trying to do is harness the new tech solutions to increase people's awareness and put the tools in their hands for them to be able to address an emergency. And so it's really a think global, act local situation. Okay, Nadine, I'm very interested. Okay, now, I'm not a doctor. Okay, now, how does this work for someone like me? And I'm in an emergency situation. Let let me paint a scenario for you, and a a scenario that I mentioned actually at the New York Tech Meetup. I'm just going to mention here because it's very illustrative. Um, At the um, Macy's Parade in Manhattan last November, and millions of people go to that, uh, there was a husband and wife clown team uh, blowing up balloons actually, and the husband collapsed in front of a million people with a cardiac arrest, unresponsive on the ground. His wife immediately did the right thing and 911 call was made and she commenced CPR. But as we know, the ambulance can't always be there right away and we want to do everything we can to get the best outcome for the patient. And immediate CPR and early use of a defibrillator is going to save someone's life in a cardiac arrest. And, you know, it's not like on TV. You know, when you watch on TV these people, they have these cardiac arrests and zap, they're fine. The data is pretty scary. The average survival of a cardiac arrest outside the hospital in the United States is about 8%. Some places do better, and it's as high as 15%. But us here in New York City are at the bottom of the ladder. New York and Detroit have the lowest cardiac arrest survival rates in the country. In New York City and Detroit, it's less than 5%. So 95% of people that have a cardiac arrest in New York City die outside the hospital so what we're trying to do is help that 95 percent so that a bystander there even if they haven't actually had all the training and all that stuff can be helped there's some plenty of plenty of data that shows that prompting somebody at the scene 911 can help you you know they can try and talk you through it but you're not always going to be in a situation where you can actually uh, get that that sort of input right there right then but that does help. Being prompted has been shown to help. So what we've done is we've tried to bridge the existing gaps and just say not only right there local where you are, but just say you're traveling somewhere in the world, 
you don't even know what the 911 number is. And believe it or not, I know it sounds hard to believe, there's more than 250 different 911 numbers around the world. In many places, it's not 911. America is one of the few countries that uses 911. I'm originally from Australia. We have triple zero there. I must admit, it's much easier to punch a zero three times and go looking for the nine and then find the one a couple of times. <laughs> I actually live in Harlem, and uh, I actually was the director of the Harlem Hospital Pediatric Emergency Department for a while after um, I was faculty at Johns Hopkins for a number of years after coming to the United States from Australia. And... Uh, I've had to actually punch that 911 in and a few times in an emergency, and I must admit it's a bit hard to hunt and pick those numbers. But this is set up so you just press that emergency button and it'll take you to whatever the correct emergency number is for your geographical area. And then what we want to do is a few things. What our app will do is not only give you information right there, but it's helping you be part of the solution. One of the unusual problems that people don't realise is that in most parts of the world, where they have an emergency system, we don't actually know where those defibrillators are. And we've seen some examples like what happened in that Macy's parade where in front of a million people, when that guy went down, people called 911. A bit hard for 911 to get there, and New York City has some special challenges. But police responded, but they didn't know where the nearest defibrillators were either. Because there is, in most places in the world, no comprehensive database that even the 911 or emergency services have of where the defibrillators are. Yet, as we saw last night, we've got great tools now. I can tell you where an ATM is, a coffee shop, a good coffee shop, a takeout this. Uh, you know, we're able to geolocate and share that information immediately within the community. And here we have something that sort of fits that model. So part of what we're doing is gamifying the locations of those defibrillators so that right where you need them, as a bystander, you need that right away, you should be able to find it. So what the whole iRescue project does is help solve the problem by empowering the community to be part of the solution, not only when they've got an emergency on their hand, but as part of building that database so that we know where it is. The USAID project has used... Uh, crowdsourcing uh, to really great effect. And even with Hurricane um, Sandy, they used crowdsourcing to help find open gas stations so people could buy gas. So that turned out to be more accurate than the existing government databases. And here we have a situation where if you were to ask the government agencies to go through all the expense of finding all those defibrillators and getting them into a database, it would be very expensive. But crowdsourcing, gamifying it, is actually really cost-efficient. So what the iRescue Project tries to do then is to empower the community to go out there when you see defibrillators anywhere in the community, do what you do for a coffee shop or an ATM machine, all those other things you actually will crowdsource. Crowdsource them in and add to that database. We validate those locations and then we put that out on multiple domains. You can access those locations from the iRescue system directly but also we're pumping that data back to the 911 systems and out into all the social media that folks are used to using. You know, clearly when you go into Google Places, you can see you can look for all sorts of things. Well, we're actually currently in discussions to add defibrillators to that layer. So wow. that we're wanting to engage social media that people are using that's in people's hands. So this is really a tiny, tiny step for technology. 
we've got the technology to crowdsource and geolocate and put information back into people's hands. And we've focused that very well in the social world. Well, we're trying to bridge the social world with the public safety and public health world. The app itself that you asked about, really what it can do is help you make that call anywhere, any place, anywhere in the world. It can provide you with real-time support so that the app will actually give you feedback, as I did the demo uh, last night. You can actually hold that, that phone in your hand as you're doing CPR, and it will give you feedback on how fast and how deep you should be pushing that, that uh, into that chest. And it will, it will give you direct communication and feedback. It's also got features to teach you what an AED is and show you, do a demo of what that AED is as a training tool and also as a CPR training tool if you want to just buff up your skills. It's going to help you find, it's going to help you find the AED in real time once we've built the database and um, completed our uh, enhancements of existing databases. And it's going to help you find that defibrillator in 2D and 3D. New York's got that problem. You've got an emergency on the 32nd floor and the defibrillator might be on the second floor. Well, you need to know that. And there's going to be all sorts of time lag trying to get to that. So 2D mapping and 3D mapping is really important. And as well, the system will validate the location, the functionality. You want the batteries in that defibrillator to be working. Once the defibrillator is in that database, then you have a chance to be able to identify those issues. And also its accessibility. Is the building that it's in locked or unlocked after 5 o'clock? And we saw some great examples, actually, from some of our colleagues at YEST, uh, YEST who gave a great presentation showing how this is easy information to share with existing technologies. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just using existing tools and harnessing them to make it better for society and community. You know, Nadine, I have to thank you. This was, you know, when we asked, you know, this is great. I, I just have to say thank you very much. And our next question is, you know, more personally for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a doctor yourself, okay? What made you choose personally, you know, to create this app? Well, app. What was personal for you for about? Well, it's an interesting thing. There were two drivers. It's a great question. I suppose I'm I'm one of those folks who um, I've been an ER doc for 25 years in a number of parts of the world, and you know, there are certain things you keep seeing all the time. And, you know, as I gave those statistics before that 95% of people in New York and 92% on average don't survive a cardiac arrest, well, me as the ER doc, I'm the one receiving that 92 to 95%. And it's very disheartening when you receive a patient who you know you can't help. You know, they didn't get CPR at the scene, they didn't get a defibrillator at the scene, and when you get them, they're brain dead and there's nothing you can do. And, you know, a, a, a really sort of poignant case for me just two weeks ago at work was a young man, younger than me, 10 years younger than me, had been wearing um, what's called a halter monitor because there was something not quite right with his heart. And we have, <clears throat> this is sort of old school technology. The old school technology is you wear a halter monitor to see what the heart's doing and then the doctors can download it and the next week they can read it. We've got technology now that if that halter monitor picks up something bad, the ambulance should be being called by the halter monitor and the halter monitor should have something to try and fix the person it's on. And so, you know, I ended up having that situation where I was faced with the guy. He was brain dead by the time I got he got to the hospital and there he was wearing a piece of technology monitoring his heart rate that was not designed to help him. 
So you only have to see that situation really happen once in your life to think there's got to be a better way. We've got to fix this problem. In 30 years, there have been, the last 30 years, there have been incredible advances in cardiac care. People have stents and they have clot busters and all the stuff that happens in the hospital in cardiac care has been amazing. Implantable defibrillators, artificial hearts. There's people walking around with a completely artificial heart. But this situation of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, in 30 years, there's been basically no improvement in outcome. So it seemed to me like we've got great technology, we've got great tools. The missing piece here isn't cleverer doctors. There's nothing I can do better when I'm faced with a patient like that. The only thing I can do better is try and bring my skills to address the gaps that I can see. I run a small not-for-profit called the EMS Safety Foundation that's really there to to leverage and uh, as an innovation tool and a knowledge transfer tool to try and bridge existing technologies to enhance outcomes. And that's focused on the whole pre-hospital care environment, looking at the broader picture of the patients, the providers and the public. Because often healthcare is sort of focused on the patient and certain things are focused on the public and, and other things are focused on the providers. And I, the reason I pulled the uh, EMS Safety Foundation together, and it's interesting we're talking today because it's actually, tomorrow is the fifth anniversary of the EMS Safety Foundation, it was clear that there's lots of tech tools and um, pathways now to bridge existing gaps. And one of the projects we were looking at was smartphone solutions for EMS systems for a fleet management tool. And Telematicus, who are our technology partners in the iRescue project, actually have a very interesting product that does vehicle fleet management. And I thought, gee, and I remember the moment it happened, it was the 4th of March 2010. Here we've got a smartphone tool that can identify where vehicles, ambulance vehicles are and move them around and see where they're moving around. How about we look at the flip side? Maybe we'll put the smartphone tool in the hands of a bystander and then they'll be able to access the location of a defibrillator that they need to try and fix this problem that hasn't really changed much in 30 years. And so that's sort of how it happened. It was translation of a concept that we were already looking at as a fleet management tool and thinking, well, gee, if we just flip that over and put these tools um, potentially in in the hands of the public, they'll be able to find this. It was all mapping. Basically, mapping is the new nirvana. This is a mapping problem. And it's a data sharing problem. We've got great mapping mapping tools and great data sharing tools. So I figured, is there some way we can harness a solution to fix this problem? Maybe in 10 years' time, probably you've got um, a fire extinguisher in your house. I have a fire extinguisher in my house. Maybe in 10 years' time, defibrillators will be you know, ubiquitous and, and people will have one in their house and everyone will have one in their car and... We won't have the situation we have now of not knowing where they are and, and not being familiar with them. And yeah. really what I Rescue does is help also bridge that gap of familiarity and awareness. I would say the 800 people in the room last night, many of them may never have known that this problem existed, that people were dying of cardiac arrest outside the hospital because the tools we have aren't being used. You know, that's so true. I have a... My sister-in-law is a doctor, and my brother is becoming one, so I can relate to that, and after losing my mom last year as well. One of the things I know Jay has a question with regarding uh, senior citizens that we'd like to ask you with regard to that. Uh, Yes, I I wanted to know, Nadine, this would be a great app for senior citizens. What what are your thoughts on this? 
Uh, you know, it's really interesting. I, I think when you look at <clears throat> who who is this going to help, and you know, who are the people who are at risk? What's fascinating is that all spectrums of society are at risk of cardiac arrest. It even happens in children. The American Heart Association says some thousands of children every year die of sudden cardiac arrest in schools and playgrounds, and we've actually held some competitions to help find the defibrillators. And there's been two very interesting examples. One was uh, one of our lead defibrillator scavenger hunt winners in our AED scavenger hunts was actually the, the parents of a child who survived a cardiac arrest at school. She'd had a viral illness and had what's called myocarditis, so she had no underlying cardiac disease she was aware of, but this virus got into her heart and she collapsed on the, school, on the sport ground. But there was a defibrillator in the school and they knew it was there. And you can imagine if you're, just imagine the logistics. You're at the school soccer field and you go down. When you actually try to think of all the things that have to happen for an ambulance to physically get right there, someone has to get to a phone. Someone has to, first of all, recognise you've gone down and you need it. Get to a phone. They've got to find you on the field. So there's a lot of time delays. And if you've got a defibrillator at the school and the the school staff and sports people and other senior people in the school know how to use it, and even the kids. You can save a life. And uh, our first winner was the parent of such a child. We then had another competition, and a classroom of 11-year-old kids found 20 defibrillators an hour in that competition, and they won that competition. So what we're finding is that it's not just the elderly, it's everyone. And when you think about it also, many many people who suffer a cardiac arrest, it may be in front of their own children. And so there are even defibrillators on the market now that can be used by a child and quite a young child. And it's sort of important. It's not just the senior citizens. It's everyone in society. So we've tried to make um, the interface on the app side of this system. And as I say, the app's just a piece of the system. The broader system is really creating a bridge using known technologies and you know some of the new tools that we have now to build those those databases, increase the awareness, and also to have an app that you can use to add to the database, or you can use the app to train yourself in CPR, or you could use the app to learn about a defibrillator and how it works, has a, um, a model in there. And uh, you can also use that to prompt yourself in an emergency with very simple clues and, and feedback. So it's the sort of tool that could be very valuable to anyone in any setting, and we've particularly tried to keep the uh, information on it very basic so that uh, it can be used by anyone. In, in, and we're, we're actually currently looking at uh, doing translations. One of the interesting things is, you know, I've got my Hopkins MPH, and so I took a pretty hardcore research approach to this. And we did an app review before we started. We've actually done a number of app reviews to see what's out there. And no surprise, you know, this whole area is not a regulated area of healthcare products. And we found many apps out there that actually had inaccurate information or information that wasn't that usable. And uh, even apps that would find defibrillators, and you could download that right now on your phone, it would say the nearest defibrillator was 5,654 kilometres away across an ocean. Well, gee, you've got an emergency in front of you. You don't want an app telling you that. And then there were some apps that just gave you the CPR information and other apps that just gave you the defibrillator information. So put yourself in the shoes of a bystander with an emergency. What are you going to do? Oh, let me open this app. Now let me open that app. had to be a seamless solution. And as I said, think globally, act locally, and really be a seamless solution that addressed all the, all the needs you're going to have in that sort of emergency. How can, how can parents use this app for 
you know, children that are terminally ill. So I didn't quite hear that. How can parents use this app for? Uh, how can parents use this app for kids that are terminally terminally ill, you know, have terminal illness? Well, you know, I think the any child that's got um, a chronic condition, I, I must admit, I, it, I've been a, an emergency doc for for 25 years, and many of that many of those years have been spent involved in paediatric emergency care. Uh, I was the director of Harlem Hospital's paediatric emergency department for some time, and I'm always uh, both extremely impressed and astounded by the level of depth and, and comprehensiveness of knowledge of parents of a child that has some chronic illness. Those parents often know a lot more than the doctors treating their children. And any child that has a chronic and particularly a terminal condition, um, I've always found that the um, the families are very schooled in everything that that child that child may need and the sorts of challenges they might be faced with. And that's one group of parents that I feel, you know, they're really outstanding group of parents who have um, really got act very actively sought out the best information that they need to care for their child. So that's one group that I think is very well schooled. You know, the interesting group of people, well, there's a few interesting groups. There's like the group we had last night. You know, I'd say many of the people in the audience last night very heavily um, familiar and skilled and schooled in tech, but I would say many of the folks in that audience may not have been familiar with what a cardiac arrest really was, uh, all the, you know, how, how you actually do CPR. They may not have taken a class and, and mm -hmm. what a defibrillator really is and how you find one. And so I think that in many ways the target audience is your average bystander, or somebody who may have someone in their family that could have a cardiac arrest, you want them to know what they need to do and when and how and how to do it best. You know, less than 25% of people who have a cardiac arrest is any CPR done. And when you look at people who've had a cardiac arrest, and that was a 1,000 a day outside the hospital, fewer than 2% is a defibrillator used. That's fewer than 2% out of a 1,000 people a day. When we, when the data shows us that up to 80% of those people could have had their lives saved by a defibrillator, so Nadine, there's a huge gap for us to bridge there. So Nadine, this app is a primary for people who might have a cardiac arrest or heart trouble. That's what this app is basically geared. Yeah, to. yeah. I think the apps are very. As I say, we haven't released the app yet. We're still in development, as I mentioned um, last night. We're still in development because as we what we're focused on is the first steps are to gamify, get the word out, uh -huh. build, you know, engage the community to help build that database. You know, ultimately, there's going to be um, technology changes to defibrillators, both in their size and their cost, and, and there'll be some way of locating them. You know, If you think back 10 years, and if I would have said to you 10 years ago, you know, your phone can navigate you, you would have thought, that's pretty interesting, or your phone right. can do this or that. And in 10 years' time, who knows what our phones will do. Maybe our phones will be the defibrillator. If somebody collapses, you just put your phone on their chest. I mean, I think, you know, we're really trying to look at how can we create a bridge with the technology that's usable right now. I don't tolerate that a 1,000 people, three jumbo jets a day go down, and we've got technology in our hands that can help us use what's out there. You know, um, that's the... That's um, it's funny that Nadine. It's funny that you said maybe one day the smartphones will be. I remember I used to watch a program called Star Trek, and Dr. McCoy had a thing called a tricorder, 
And it's kind right. of what you're saying. These these phones are becoming remarkable technology, and you can monitor blood pressure and sugar levels and all this stuff on your phone now. And it's amazing that you said that. So I want to know, when is this application going to be available, the one that you're speaking of now, this app right here that you're well, talking about? Well, the, the app's part of a broader system, and... You know, we're we're focusing on building the defibrillator database so that when the app is released, that that whole chain of the system of making the call, doing the CPR, finding and using the AED will all happen um, seamlessly. We're planning a five-city pilot uh, here in the United States, and we're currently uh, in some negotiations with some funding to roll them out. So we're hoping this year to actually roll out our five-city pilot uh, so that then there'll be uh, access to the app, um, and we'll be doing an evaluation of uh, how that, you know, the human factors issues. We've got a very diverse team. Our software developers are in the UK, human factors people are in Australia, and we've got a, a whole a whole slew of emergency service people from epidemiologists to uh, emergency responders who are involved in how we're developing this particular project. So we're hoping for later in the year. We'll definitely keep you posted. Our website is irescue, I-R-E-S-C-U dot info, no E. And uh, you can actually sign up there. We send out bulletins giving you updates on what we're doing. Uh, we've spent the last um, 18 months very intensively uh, running AED defibrillator challenges. Uh, last June we held one in Colorado and identified many of the, uh, sorry, in Denver, Colorado, and identified most of the defibrillators in the Denver area, the greater Denver area. So we um, found that uh, that's an important focus for us right now. What's really interesting is you know, when we first presented at the M Health Summit, December 2010, you know, many of the folks at you know the M Health Summit, which is the health summit, said, "Well, they all knew what an what an app was, and they all knew what cloud data was, but they didn't know what a defibrillator was." And then four weeks later, we presented at the um, American Heart Association uh, ECCU meeting, the Emergency Cardiac Care Update meeting, and four weeks later, everyone says, "What's an app?" They knew what a defibrillator was. I thought, well, that's going to change. But 12 months later, we presented at the American Heart Association meeting, and people saying, gee, what's cloud data and what's an app? And then four weeks later, we presented again at the M Health Summit and said, what's a defibrillator? And I thought, well, you know, tools we've got, technology that we've got needs to be used, and we're trying to bridge that gap to make sure that we're making the best use of the tools that we've got to bridge social, new tech, and saving lives. Small, small step for technology, giant leap for public health. You're very right. And one of the things, you know, that brings us to a close with our last question. Um, if you had to sum up personally, Nadine, okay, it, it, one of the things I want to just acknowledge you for taking, taking the time to really research, understand, and know what this community, you know, know what the, the global community needs from the senior citizen to the parent to the everyday person. And here's a question I have for you in closing this out. If you had to sum up in a couple of statements, what do you think would be um, where you see this app? Because I see this app. There's so much I see with this app from what you've already said today. What do you personally see as a person who created this, as the founder of this, and saw the need for this? What do you see in how this will aid the medical industry going forth with regard to medical personnel and with regard to the everyday person who will be utilizing it? What is your vision for that? And what I guess what is your prediction, rather? 
Well, you know, whenever anyone asks a question like that, I always think back to Bill Gates' prediction for mainframe computers. So whatever I say, I'm nowhere near as smart as that guy, and he sure didn't get that one right. But what I can see, and I, I really think that if you just look back even five years and try and predict what's going to happen five years forward, what I do see is that these sort of challenges that we're facing where, you know, that example that I described of someone dying in front of a million people in the centre of the biggest tech city in the world because of a data management, a systems engineering deficit, really, I see this as a solution to a lot of those sort of problems. I, I can see that we now have... I suppose, disruptive tools that are cheaper, better and faster than a lot of what we used to have 10 years ago. And whether we're talking about the first world, where there's sophisticated emergency systems, or whether we're talking about the developing world, where the use of mobile is actually more ingrained and more um, utilised because of necessity, these sort of tools have the ability to totally change what we're doing I see new tech and I see mobile as the most powerful public health tools we have ever had. We go back to that public health story of uh, how they worked out that the water pump was um, causing the cholera outbreak, John Snow's project there in, in the UK that changed public health and epidemiology. I see this form of new tech, social, and uh, the ability to empower the community and engage the community with the uh, research and the professional community in a way that's not happened before, particularly in public health and emergency services, as a game changer. And this is just one small step on that pathway. So that's really what I see, and I think we're we're ready for a whole new age of uh, engagement. You know, that, that you can point a smartphone at a 2D tag and have that phone go to a data upload site where you, as a community person, can enter the location of uh, any medical information is just an amazing thing. It's, it, it really is a game changer. And I think the medical community, entertainment is great. The entertainment industry managed to handle and harness and engage technology so quickly and so rapidly and so effectively You know that I can go to a medical conference today and people are saying, but what's an app? It's pretty amazing. So we're heading for a major revolution in public health thanks to the application of these types of new technologies. Dean, thank you so much. We're thankful to have you on. And, My pleasure, um, anytime. Yes, and uh, I know that people can go, I think it's, can you share with them how they can do it through something called Microsoft Tag, I think? They can go yeah. Oh, that's what we, one of the, yeah. That's a good point you mentioned. I didn't really touch on that. We actually were invited to the White House last year because one of the ways we've tried to uh, gamify this and empower the community is to try and apply some of the existing tools that are being used in social. So what we've actually done to make it easy for people to upload defibrillator locations that they find is we've been using 2D tags. And we actually have chosen to use Microsoft's eTag. One, because this is a social good project. I think it's very important to engage industry. And so if you go to our website, you'll see that uh, geolocation eTag right on the front page of our website. And you can just point your smartphone at that little tag and it will take your phone immediately to the AED upload site. So you, as an individual, 
can help add defibrillators to the global database that we subsequently validate. And so even though people think, well, what can I do to make a difference? You may add that one defibrillator that actually saves someone's life. Well, thank you so much, Nadine, and we're happy to have you. And um, we're going to sign off. And thank you for being a part of our show today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Really appreciate you getting the word out on how important it is to empower the community to help save lives. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye then. Bye-bye.